I hate gummy bears. So when I do that, I use Twinkies. It's fantastic. I've been reading like a madman the last few weeks. Well, welcome everyone uh, to Grace. Happy New Year. And uh, glad that you're here. Hey, let me just um, reiterate one thing Ezra focused on. It's 101. Uh, if you've been coming to Grace for a little bit, if it's your first day today, 101 is the, the pull the curtain back. What is Grace all about? How does it work? Where does it come from? It, it is the place to kind of get the, the most thorough explanation of Grace Church. And so if you kind of want to know that, that's what 101 is for. Uh, you'll do things like take a tour of the building and hear about kind of different ministries and things like that. So when you come out of 101, you'll be able to navigate Grace. And uh, that's, a, that's kind of one of our big goals with it, is that you can kind of take that information, find your way around. It just kind of takes all that uh, newness and I wonder what I'm supposed to do stuff away and let you lock into it. So be a part of that. So 101 is today. It's from 2 to about 5.30 or 6. It's in this room. I teach it, so we'll be able to hang out a little bit, and um, we'll get dinner for everyone, and we'll watch your uh, small kids for you. So we try to kind of make it as easy as possible uh, to get to that and encourage you to, uh, to jump out and be a part of that, okay? So that's today. All right, new series, uh, Life Hacks. Excited to get into this. And what we're going to do with life hacks is there's a place in the Bible, I'm going to show you here in a minute, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus goes through this list, about eight things in this list, maybe nine, depends on how you break it up. I broke it up into eight. So eight things that he has in this list. And in these sentences, most of them are just sentences, what Jesus does is he kind of gives us counterintuitive secrets to happiness and to a functional life. So one of the things I love about Jesus and his teachings, because he created us, the Bible is real clear about that, that Christ is our creator, when Jesus speaks or when the Bible uh, records what he says, it helps us at every strata of our humanity. So Jesus, when he says something, it helps us all the way kind of down to our soul, all the way up to like the family room, because it's as if the creator inventor wrote a, a user's manual, right? And, and he, in essence, says, you know, you guys were created to work this way, so, so here it is. So we're going to take those sayings, we're going to pull into their background a little bit so they make sense for us, uh, but we're going to be able to apply those in very practical ways and then in very, very deep ways, and we're just going to pick those off here for the next few weeks, and uh, they're kind of shortcuts or life hacks to our, our spiritual journey into our relationship with God. So I think you're going to like it, and it's going to be helpful, and it's going to be a great way um, to start the new year as we're making resolutions and all that kind of stuff, kind of how do I jumpstart and make this move forward in my relationship with God. So let me show you what we're talking about. Grab your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible and you want to use one, there's some under the chairs, you can get that. If someone else in the row gets it before you get it, punch them and take it. That's what Jesus would do. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, just take that and keep it. And then you have your own. It's page um, 677 in the Bible there in the chairs. If you're electronic, uh, you want to use your phone or your iPad, we use the U version app, Y-O-U version. So download that, open it, click on live, and then our zip code is 44333. And you'll have the... the scripture there and some places to take notes and things like that, okay? So let's, uh, let's look at this. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start with verse 1. 
Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Let's just pause here for a second. So here's a quick life hack for you when you're interacting with the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, context is very important. Context is very important. And there's two kind of major context context issues with the Bible. One is the rest of the Bible, right? So the Bible goes together. It works as one thing. So if you pull a verse out of context, you will misunderstand that verse probably and probably misapply it. That happens all the time. That's why it's so important to kind of know the whole of the Bible, right? So a lot of times when you misread a verse, if all the scripture you read in a given week is like what's printed on the back of a coffee mug with a Thomas Kincaid picture on it, you're probably going to take that verse out of context. It's called the, the Bible calls it the whole counsel of God, or how does the verse go with the rest of the Bible? The second major kind of issue with context is culture. So when Jesus said these things, there's people listening to his words for the first time. So understanding the culture or understanding how they heard them helps us to understand how to hear it and translate it into our lives as well. So Jesus sits on the side of this mountain and he's teaching his disciples. Here's the context. Most of these, uh, all of his disciples and most of the people listening to him would have been ancient Jewish people. So when they heard Jesus, Jesus was Jewish, right? So when they heard Jesus, they would have heard him through an ancient Jewish mindset and, and kind of culture. Most of them would have been familiar with what we would call the Old Testament. And Jesus, a lot of times, quoted the Old Testament. But much of that scripture was, was available to these ancient Jewish folks. And they would have studied it, been raised on it, etc., So when you hear these things Jesus is going to go through, we have to put it kind of into that context so it makes sense to uh, us and we can understand in light of the whole scripture and also in light of how they would hear it for the first time, okay? So that's a big deal. Jesus sits on a mountainside. His disciples begin, uh, he came to him and he began to teach them. This is the first weird kind of odd sentence that he says. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Weird thing to say. What's it mean? Doesn't seem to make sense. That word blessed in the Greek is literally our word for happy. So happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? Jesus, when he said this, might have said it with a bit of a hitch in his voice. So he might have said it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he's taking a socioeconomic term and idea, and he's bringing spiritual application. He's tying it to our souls. And the ancient Jewish person would have heard it that way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the ancient world... You were in no way blessed or happy if you were poor. Because in the ancient world, poverty was very different than the way that we would think of it today, especially as North Americans, right? So poverty is not so much an economic issue as it is the lack of hope and access to justice. 
That's why poverty is defined differently in every culture. So a family of four living on $20,000 or less is considered poor in North America. You take that same family and put them in Haiti, and they're wealthy, where the average yearly income is $600, right? So poverty is not an economic issue. When we as North Americans hear poor, we think we're poor whenever we can't do what we want. That's our definition of poor, right? So poor isn't that I'm actually poor. Poor is I can't do what I want. And no matter how much money you have, if you can't do what you want, you think of yourself as poor. My family and I um, took this month-long vacation this summer. It was awesome. My, my wife, Heidi, if you don't know her, she's crazy. She's crazy, right? And so she, she had this idea. To, she wanted to take us on this out west trip. I'm like, okay. So she got a second job. And she earned all the money and put it in the bank, and she planned the trip, and now I'm, like, committed, right? So we took this out west trip. We have six children. Heidi's brother also has six children. So her brother and I went together, and we bought this trailer. And we were going to take this RV trip out west, and he took it for five weeks and then brought it back, and we took it for four weeks. Well, to get a trailer that sleeps eight people, you either can get, like, a cargo trailer... (laughs) Or you got to get like a fancy travel trailer, right, to be big enough. So my trailer's got slide outs, it's got cable, it's got a microwave, it's got air conditioning, it's power everything, it's a fancy trailer. By the way, it's for sale, we're dealing, we're dealing this afternoon, this afternoon only if you call, right? So we have this nice trailer and we get to take this amazing once in a lifetime trip. We're traveling through like the middle of New Mexico, and one of my sons says to me, Dad, can we go to Applebee's? I'm hungry. And I say to him, no, why not? And I said, because we can't afford it. Because the reason we brought a trailer is to sleep and eat from the trailer, because you can take your Aldi's food with you in the trailer, right? And so I'm like, no, going to Applebee's for my family usually requires like a second mortgage or a kidney or plasma or something, right, is involved. And so I'm like, no. And he looked at me and he said, why? Are we poor? After I hit him, (laughs) I said to him, I said, no, poor people don't have an extra house that they pull behind their van while on a month-long vacation, you know? We're not poor, we're just not doing what you want, and that's the way that we think of it, right? That's how we think of poverty. In the ancient world, poor meant a lack of hope and access to justice. We have friends in the Central African Republic right now, you may be seeing this on the news, they're undergoing a coup. Their crops have been wiped out, and their seed to plant new ones has been stolen, right? They are poor. Why? Because they're hungry. And there is no hope of those circumstances changing. They don't have another way to feed themselves. Nothing can be done. They have lost all control. They have no ability to generate hope for themselves. They are poor. Well, somebody stole their seed. Right. Call the police. Well, the police stole it. Well, get the National Guard involved. The military and the police are the same people. We'll call the president. He's the one that told the military to steal it. There's no access to justice. It's poverty. It's desperation. 
It's hopelessness. There is nothing you can do. That is how an ancient Jewish person heard poor. That's why when you read the Bible, if you're blind or if you're lame or if your arm doesn't work, why would people always ask to be healed? Because it condemned them to this life of begging. There's nothing I can do. I'm poor. I'm completely dependent on the generosity and the goodness of somebody else, the mercy of someone else, because I can do nothing. There is no social safety net. There is no ladder to climb. I can do nothing to change my circumstances. I am poor. Blessed are the poor, ancient Jewish ear. What? Happy are the poor. What? In spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. Blessed are you when you are poor, desperate, hopeless, when you recognize your spiritual poverty. Why? Because when I recognize that I am hopeless spiritually, I am not a good person trying to get better. I I am not a person that, there's no way for me to earn my way to heaven. There is no way for me to forgive my own sins. There is no way for me to correct my relationship with God. I am bankrupt. I am totally depraved. I am poor in spirit. And God would say, when you recognize that, good. Why? Because when you know you're bankrupt, you cry out for me. It is my mercy and my grace and my compassion that I am eager to extend to you. But it must be asked for. I am not a life improvement. I am the giver of life. You're spiritually dead. I will resurrect you. I will make you spiritually alive. But you must ask. You must recognize. You must be at that place of humility and brokenness. So it's good, blessed, happy. This, why? Because it opens up the kingdom of heaven to you. It opens up salvation to you. It causes you to cry out in dependency on me, right? Counterintuitive. Biggest myth of our culture is that we're good people. We're not good people. We're evil people, right? What comes naturally to us is sin, not goodness, right? Your mama told you to share. She never told you to be selfish. You figured that out all on your own. The quicker I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy, the faster I cry out for dependency on God, and it's the key that opens up heaven to me. Let me show you what a poor in spirit person's heart sounds like. Flip back to the left in your Bible to the book of Psalms. If you kind of open your Bible in the middle, you'll wind up in the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms, chapter 86, is page 411 of those Bibles in the chairs. What does it sound like? What's the mindset of someone who is poor in spirit? Verse 1, chapter 86, Psalms. Listen to this guy. He's praying, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. 
You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am distressed, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deed can compare to yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, Lord, that I might rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, for, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you, but you, Lord, are compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. That's what a poor in spirit person sounds like. Now, you know who that was written by? That was written by the wealthiest, most powerful man of his time, King David. When he said, I'm poor and needy, he wasn't talking about materially. He, had, he owned everything. He, had, he wasn't talking about a lack of justice, right? Because he was justice. He was talking about his spirit. God, I have everything in the world. I have all the power in the world, but I am spiritually bankrupt. Have mercy on me. You who abound in love and compassion, I'm crying out to you. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. God looked at that mindset and said, David, blessed are you. Why? Because you're poor in spirit. You know what? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is exactly where our relationship starts. And it's where it continues. Because even after salvation, my dependency on God doesn't go away. It humbles me. It puts me in my humanity in my proper place. It puts God in his, and it defines our relationship with, it, with each other. So happy, it's the key to happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the second little saying that Jesus does here is connected to the first. So remember context? So a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, the verse above, the verse you're reading, helps to frame the context because it's one conversation, right? So the second saying is this, Matthew chapter 5 again, verse 4. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be <coughs> comforted. Context is a big, big deal here. If you pull that verse out of context, it sounds like this. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you're sad, I'll comfort you, right? Blessed are you who mourn. If you're sad, I'll comfort you. And while that is true, that is absolutely true. If you are going through a difficult time in your life right now, if you've had a loss, if you've had a disappointment, if you're scared, absolutely it's true that God is the God of all comfort. He will go through those hard times with you. That's a truth of scripture. It's just not what Jesus is talking about right here. Happy are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Context. Remember, the context is 
my depravity. My context is I'm spiritually bankrupt. Now I'm blessed if I mourn. Mourn what? Mourn my sin. You are happy, you are blessed when sin grieves you. The idea here is not emotional pain. It's not what Jesus is driving at. But it's more the seriousness of our sin and how it affects the heart of our God. And when you take this phrase and you pull it back into the rest of the Bible, remember context, you get a better view of it. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 61. If you're in Psalms, it's maybe, I don't know, 50 or 70 pages over to your right, you'll hit Isaiah. Page uh, 517, maybe 100 pages. Isaiah chapter 61 the ancient Jewish ear would have known this passage and would have understood the tie that Jesus was making to this idea of mourning something, okay? So in Isaiah 61, what's happening is um, Jesus is being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 61, 2, 3, 4... There's a lot of like foreshadowing or prophecy about Jesus and what he's going to be like. And so in that foreshadowing, God is speaking here to Jewish people specifically, Jewish people who have willingly sinned against God and, it, and are far from God because of their sin. So the Bible teaches us this. The Bible says that we're created to be in connected with God. Sin breaks that relationship with God. It's, that relationship is reestablished when we're poor in spirit, when we cry out for God's mercy and salvation. But even after salvation, sin still affects our relationship with God. It still creates distance in our relationship with God. So we are blessed when the creation of that distance grieves us spiritually. Why? Because as I repent and turn from that sin... It allows God to comfort and reestablish relationship with me. And this is what he is discussing in Isaiah 61 with the nation of Israel. They've sinned. They're far from God. Now God is promising a reconciliation of that relationship. Verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and a release from darkness for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And God here is promising his people that if they will turn back to him or deal with their sin, he will come in and he will restore and rebuild that relationship. Jesus is inferring this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and he says, blessed are you who mourn when you grieve, when you're sorrowful because of the relational distance that's happened between you and God because of your sin if you'll deal with that sin, God will come back in immediately because he's eager and quick to forgive. 
He will cleanse you from unrighteousness and reestablish that close connection between you and him. Okay? Here's a little life hack for you. <clears throat> when you're in difficult situations in life, whether they're consequences of sin or just the circumstances of life, right? And you're asking the question, where is God and how is he interacting with me right now? What am I, how am I supposed to think about God in the middle of this mess? If you can take this one idea and use it as a foundation, it will alter your interaction with God through all life circumstances. Here's the one idea, ready? The one idea is this. God loves you. God loves you. Why did this awful thing happen to me? I don't have a quick answer to that, but this is what I know. God loves you. Why did I have this loss in my life? I don't have a quick answer to that. I'm not God. This is what I know about God. God loves you. And when you're looking to understand God in life, if you can start through that premise, God loves me, it redefines and correctly defines how I respond in all the circumstances, whatever they may be. God loves you. He created you for a relationship with him. And he has gone all in to cause that relationship or make it available to you. So we just celebrated Christmas, right? God sends his only son, Jesus. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross, an innocent man, a substitutionary atonement. He paid a price you could not pay for a debt he did not owe, right? So Jesus pays for our sins. He dies, he's buried, he rose again. That's why he's God, right? God would look at you and I and say, hey, I've gone all in. I gave my son. I watched him suffer and die. I could have stopped it. I chose not to because I love you. You're created for a relationship with me. I've made a way for that. You're created to enjoy me. I've made a way for us to reconnect. You're created to go through life dependent and connected and intertwined with me. I've made a way for all of that. When you recognize your poor in spirit, cry out to me, it opens up that avenue for our relationship again. And when you purposely, willingly, even unintentionally introduce sin and cause distance, it's not that you have violated a holy rule and now I'm going to nail you with a bolt of lightning. It's that you have struck out at my very heart. What more can I do? And for you to willfully, purposely, knowingly engage sin and knowingly cause distance, that is an indicator of where your heart is actually at. When I break a rule and I don't care about the person I broke it with, it doesn't bug me, right? So let's just hypothetically say I was driving down Route 21 toward my house because hypothetically I left my computer at home. And hypothetically I was doing 73 in a 60 mile an hour zone. And hypothetically a Norton peace enforcement officer wanted to speak with me about that, right? So I get pulled over, he comes up. I'm always nice when I get pulled over. Be nice to cops, they're just doing their job. You're the one that's a jerk. You were speeding, not them, right? Pulls me over, asks for my license. I said, here I am, here it is. I am the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Bogue. 
Anything? 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 Apparently, Norton police aren't very impressed by that. I used all my extra initials. Didn't help at all, right? Gives me a ticket. Now, here's the deal. I, I don't have any... I don't care. And the cop doesn't care. He went home that night. He wasn't upset that I was speeding. He was just doing his job. He didn't care. And I'm a big boy. I got a speeding ticket. I don't care, right? So I went to bed. I didn't think twice about it. I sinned. I broke a rule. I just don't care because my heart's not in it, right? I don't love him. He doesn't love me. It's just the consequences for a rule. It's no big deal, right? If I sin against Heidi, or my children, I, I can't sleep at night. If I do something to them, far beyond getting caught in my sin, the very fact that I am the one who by my actions and through my own will introduce pain into my family, I, want, I literally want to throw up. Why? Because I grieve it. Oh, I, I do that. Oh, I'm so stupid. Why do those words just, I said something dumb not about Heidi a couple weeks ago. And I was sick about it all day long. I'm like, ah, oh, I was dumb. Why didn't I? Why? Because I love her. I grieve what I just did. I mourn that I caused a relational pain in her life. Jesus says, you're blessed when you interact with God this way because you're pushing out someone who is tied into you at great cost. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, when we sin purposely, it's like we're crucifying Jesus all over again. When I'm callous, when I'm willful, when I just don't give a rip, I'm doing it anyways, and I know the Bible says don't. It's not that you broke a holy rule. It's that you, you spat upon the heart of God. And even after salvation, it creates distance in my relationship with God. Jesus said, you're happy, you're blessed, when you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, you're poor in spirit, and you're even more blessed, so to say, or continue to be blessed, when you grieve that, why? Because to the point that I grieve it is to the point that I deal with it. You ever had a useless apology? Your children do this to each other all the time, right? Why'd you hit your sister with an aluminum bat? I don't know. Sorry. Right? You're not sorry. No, I said I was sorry. <laughs> Give me the bat. I'm going to hit you with it. Oh, I'm really sorry, right? right? So we, we all know this. Very different than someone looking you in the eye and saying, I have sinned against you and I, I got nothing. I am we, I'm begging for your forgiveness. It's only when I engage my sin at that level that real forgiveness can be offered. Because when you say sorry and the other person says, it's okay, right? I don't know how they turned into teenage girls right there, but, Right? No relational healings actually happened. But when you grieve and you look at someone and you beg for mercy and they genuinely give it, what happens? You are what? Comforted. 
You still love me? Yep. You're not leaving me? Nope. You're going to you're gonna try to trust me? Yep. I love you. This is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. But I didn't die on the cross for you and I to go through life callously with each other. You are blessed when you grieve, when you mourn your sin. Okay? So blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they cry out to God. That's what we got to do so that heaven is opened up to us. And blessed are those who mourn. How come? Because it allows me to bring comfort. I can actually forgive because you're actually engaging what you've done, participated in. Okay? So when you look at those first two sentences, right? You're looking at those and you're saying, weird, different. What was he talking about? So we talked about it, right? And the bottom line is this. I have a loving father who interacts with me in grace, passion, and mercy, and comforts me in my failure. You got a backstory now. It makes more sense because of context, right? And we can understand what Jesus is actually saying because Jesus said it. It cuts through all the stratas of our humanity from my soul, like my salvation, all the way through now to my relationship with somebody else, the stuff that lands in my family room, okay? Now, let me take all that and let me hyper, make it hyper practical. So ready, here we go. Five useful things Jesus just said to us in those two sentences, right? Five useful things. Here's number one. First useful thing, number one. You are more spiritual than you are physical. Therefore, happiness is found from the soul up. You as a human being are more spiritual than you are physical. So happiness is found from the soul up. So we're making all these resolutions, right? Going to get out of debt. That's a good thing. Going to eat less Twinkies. That's a bad thing. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lose 30 pounds. That's a good thing. All that kind of stuff is fine. It will not make you happy and it will not satisfy your soul. Okay? You can be in the best shape of your life. It's not going to get you into heaven. It's not going to give you peace at God. You can have every credit card paid off in the world. That's fine stuff. That's good stuff. Go for it. Seriously, it's good stuff. It's just not going to satisfy your soul. Why? Because as a human being, you are mostly spiritual, much less than physical. So in order to find happiness in my life, I'm only blessed as my soul is satisfied, right? So it's a life hack. It's just, just remember that. I'm more spiritual than I am anything else. And so unless I'm engaging my relationship with God, nothing else is ever going to satisfy my soul. Second useful thing Jesus teaches us is this. The quicker you abandon your sense of spiritual arrival, the faster you'll arrive. The quicker you abandon your sense of spiritual arrival, the faster you'll arrive. Nothing makes me more nervous than mature Christians. <laughs> I don't like you. I just be honest. I don't trust you. Right? If you've got a fish on you, you scare me to death. Okay? Why? Guys, it doesn't matter if you're not a Christian yet and you're thinking about becoming one, or if you just accepted God's gift of Christmas just a couple weeks ago, like we talked about, and so that's why you're at church now. It's great. Or if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, you're King David. You're a man after God's own heart, and you wrote most of the book of Psalms and made up a big chunk of the Old Testament and recognize that you are poor in spirit. The more that I 
recognize my dependency on God. In fact, I would say this, the more mature you are, the more you realize you're dependent on God. The more that I recognize I am completely dependent on the mercy and the grace of God for my salvation and for everything else in my life, the faster you arrive spiritually. So the quicker you abandon your sense of arrival, the faster you arrive. Jesus is just teaching us that. Third thing. Third thing is this. Life on earth is just the eighth grade. Life on earth is just the eighth grade. Did you guys get that in that passage? Yeah, you got to read it in the Greek. You got to be like me, right? The life on earth is just the eighth grade. What do I mean by this? I don't talk about this publicly too much because it's hard on Heidi when I talk about it, but Heidi was not my first love. She's not, she's not here this morning, so I'll talk about this. She was, or she break into tears, probably wailing, gnashing of teeth. Um, or jumping for joy, thinking, eh, I throw my life away, which is usually what happens. Heidi is not my, was not my first love. My first love was Lynette Good. I was in love with Lynette Good. And she in love with me. We had a very serious relationship. It was, it was incredible. It was passionate. It was long. We are engaged to be married. We went out for a long time, a better part of three weeks. <laughs> Saw each other every day. I proposed. She circled yes and handed the paper back to me. We swapped trapper keepers. I mean, it was serious, right? I thought when I fell in love with Lynette Good in the eighth grade, I thought life began and ended with Lynette Good because when you're in the eighth grade, you think that everything that's ever going to happen to you in life has happened to you in the eighth grade, right? How many of you remember the eighth grade? Wow. You guys were not well educated because <laughs> not very many hands went up, right? So I'm going to start using smaller words since apparently you skipped the eighth grade, okay? okay? Remember the eighth grade? Everything that happened to you in the eighth grade, you thought that was life. And you thought if you didn't get invited to this party, if you didn't get this A, if Lynette Good didn't say yes and marry you, that life was going to be over. Why? Because you have a very narrow view when you're in the eighth grade. Now, most of you apparently, by my quick survey, don't even remember being in the eighth grade. So what does it teach you about the eighth grade? It wasn't nearly as consequential as it felt at the moment. You are more spiritual than you are physical, which means that most of your life is going to be lived in eternity, not now. The Bible says that our life on earth is just a vapor, and most of what we do with our life here is prepare ourselves to be with God, because today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the day to get our soul right with God. And when I expand my view of life, and I do things like this, when I accept and participate in and value the kingdom of heaven above everything else, it's a key to happiness. This is what Jesus is saying. It's like most likes the eighth grade. When you raise your gaze and you get that bigger view of eternity, that's when you get into the pieces of the soul that satisfy and connect us for the life that we were born to be a part of eternally. Fourth thing. Fourth thing is this, doing whatever you want is actually a path to pain. Doing whatever you want is actually a path to pain. So one of the big myths of our, of our culture that we're all raised in is when I do what I want, regardless if I'm ignoring God or not, that's where freedom and happiness is found. And Jesus would say, no, that's actually the stuff you should be grieving. Why? Because that's how you make life miserable. 
your biggest regrets in life are directly tied to you doing whatever you wanted. Your most fulfilling moments in life are directly tied to you being the person that God has called you to be. So this is what Jesus is saying. No, you, you, don't, you don't embrace, enjoy, flaunt sin. You actually grieve it because it rips you away from the heart of God and ultimately will rip you away from the heart of the people that you love. So number four, doing whatever you want is actually a path of pain. Last thing Jesus is teaching here, a fifth useful thing. God is not a religion in a building. He's a person and he wants to interact with you. He's not a religion in a building. He's a person and he wants to interact with you. Jesus is very much alive. He has feelings. He has thoughts. And he interacts with you like a friend, the Bible says, if you're his follower. So going to church and going through some robotic, memorized thing is of no consequence to God. If I walked into the house and I said, Heidi, I love you. You are great. Bless are you, Heidi. And I did that every day faithfully for the rest of my life, Right? It would mean nothing to her. Why? Because she's a person. She has feelings. And what she longs for and what I long for is for our hearts to be connected. That's what happens in a relationship. That's what friends do. They love each other. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. You grieve. Why? Because it's me. It's me. It's, It's not God or the church. It's me that you've sinned against. It's me that you're distant from. And I long to be connected and to interact with you, right? Now, here's the deal. Here's just five useful things. And you got seven days between now and the next time you're at church, unless you want to love Jesus more and come on Saturday nights, then you got six days, right? If you could just start downloading one or two of those things, you would be shocked how much your life changes. So remember, number one, you're more spiritual than you are physical, if you took the kind of commitment that you're taking to go to the gym right now or the kind of commitment that you're taking to eat healthy or the kind of commitment that you're taking to pay off debt and took that and just said, you know what, I'm going to give that level of effort to my spiritual life, you would be blown away how much your life changes, orders itself and becomes happy because you focused on your soul, which is the bulk of you, Right? So just taking that little life hack, using it as a shortcut, and saying, wow, I'm going to invest in these ways spiritually, get to know God these ways on a soul level, simply just recognizing that I'm poor in spirit, right? So I'm less dependent on myself for my goodness and more dependent on God. It alters who we are. And that's the natures of Jesus' teaching. It starts with our soul, cuts through all the stratas of life, and winds up on the very, very practical levels. So if you take those and grab them just for this next week or so, you might be blown away about how much God uses that and changes us in in our lives, okay? So the first two sentences, and we'll jump on the next couple next weekend. As the band comes out, guys, why don't we do this as we uh, close down our morning? Why don't we take some time and just pray? If If you want to, you can bow your heads and close your eyes and just Grab a couple minutes here, busy, busy life. Just grab a couple minutes and connect with God. Maybe pray that stuff through. Maybe you've never recognized your spiritual bankruptcy and you need to cry out to God for mercy. Do that right now, right? There's nothing to hold you back from that. Maybe there's sin that you're engaged with very much on purpose that you haven't been mourning, you've been flaunting. And you say, God, 
cause me to change. Give me the courage to make this shift. Because I want to be close to you. That's more important than anything else. Help me to alter these things in my life. Okay, wherever you are, pray those things and start down this journey of being the person fully that God has called you to be. Why don't we do that even now?